what's the most important thing that you can know? What's the most important thing that you can know? Now, you do a little Google search, and you always have to be careful with that, but a little Google search uh, comes up with articles about, you know, the, the principle of compound interest is one of the most important things that you can know, and, and, and that is important. That, there, there's some wisdom in understanding how that works, uh, but, you know, there's also things about seeing yourself as you truly are and, and all sorts of things like that. Well, the Apostle Paul says in our text this morning that the most important thing that we can know is the gospel. The most important thing we can know is that Jesus Christ lived, that he died for our sins, that he was buried, and that on the third day he was raised in accordance with the scriptures. That's what he says is of first importance. That's what's most important. And I believe that that when that is truly of first importance in our lives, it, it changes everything. It transforms everything about who we are. It, it reshapes all of our conversations and outlooks and priorities. It, it brings real freedom into our lives in ways that we have never known before. Uh, we, we tend to find out that the freedom we thought we had before actually was slavery. And now we taste real freedom with Christ. Uh, it, it brings love and grace to our relationships and our interactions. It brings a sure hope. Even in the midst of the most difficult struggles that life brings us, it brings a real and sure hope. And when the gospel, the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is of first importance, it transforms our lives. That's what we're going to see in our text today. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 8. I invite you to turn there in your Bibles on page 961, those Bibles on your row. By the way, if you don't have a copy of the scriptures, we have some available in our resource uh, shelf over here. We'd love to give you a free copy of God's word to take with you today. But let's stand together. Let's hear from God's word. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas. And then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, although some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this uh, joyous day, Uh, but we also thank you that, that Easter Really, in, in a lot of ways, is nothing special for God's people. We, we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord, the death of our Lord for our sins, and his victory over sin and death every, every day, every Sunday as we gather together. But we thank you for this, this time to, to truly fix our eyes and focus on all that you've accomplished for us through your cross and empty tomb. Lord, we pray that you would increasingly make that of first importance in our life. That you'd help us to see how uh, significant, how beyond significant the resurrection is and what it means and how it, how it fleshes out and changes every aspect of who we are and what we do and how we live. Would you have your way with us today, Lord Jesus? And we pray all this in the name of Jesus 
And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You have a seat. Uh, the first thing I want you to notice here, the, the gospel so uh, succinctly uh, summarized here by the Apostle Paul in verses 3 and 4. It's probably one of the most succinct summaries of the gospel that you will find in all the scriptures in these two verses. But I want you to notice that the gospel, in its essence, is news. Right? It's news. The gospel is not, Christianity is not primarily a philosophy, It is not primarily a way of life or a set of principles to live by. Primarily, it is historical fact. That's how the Apostle Paul presents it here. It is news of events that have actually happened in history. That's what the gospel is. Paul presents here to us the the facts of the gospel. The facts of the gospel. Christianity is primarily a proclamation of of certain historical events. It's only secondarily a way of life. It is primarily news. It's the announcement of, of historical facts. And we see this clearly in the text, verses 3 and 4. Look at them again with me. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. What Paul delivers of first importance is not advice on how you should try to live your life. That's not what he offers. It's not a philosophy, a way of thinking and seeing things. What he offers us is historical fact. Historical fact is news. That's what the word gospel literally means. Good news. Good news. Not good advice. Good news. Uh, And this is so important for us to understand because there's so many misconceptions and presuppositions that people have about what Christianity is. Right, the, the Bible is this list of rules to, to rule your life, right? to keep you from joy and to keep you from all the good things that you really want for yourself. Right? It, it's, just a, it's a lot of, of, of religion and advice for how to have a, a better life. Um, but it's, it's primarily news about the historical person and the historical work and the historical facts surrounding Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Everything in this passage is is showing that to us, and I don't want you to to miss that. The gospel is good news. It is not good advice. It is not good advice. It's good news. Good news. And here are the facts. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, lived a sinless, perfect life. And then he willingly died in your place the death that you deserve on the cross for your sins. He was buried. And on the third day, he was risen. He is risen. Right? Those are the facts. He rose victorious over Satan, sin, and death. Now, of those facts of the gospel, the resurrection really stands out as, as prominent in those facts. Paul highlights the particular importance of the resurrection later in this chapter. If you look down in chapter 15 at verses 13 through 19, this is what he, he writes there. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we, in Christ we have hope in this life only, 
We are of all people most to be pitied. Right? This is the importance of the resurrection. Right? In other words, if the resurrection isn't true, we're wasting our time here. Right? We are wasting our lives here gathered together on this day. Our faith is futile. Like we, are, we are a joke if the resurrection is not true. That's how significant it is. If it isn't a historical fact that, that Jesus rose from the dead, then his life and death have accomplished literally nothing for us. I want you to see that the gospel is first and foremost the announcement of facts and how important it is that these facts be true. All right? And that's how, that's how the Apostle Paul presents us to it. These things have happened. Let me testify to them. Let me tell you of other people who can testify to the truth, to the validity of these historical facts. Now, even the word preaching right, points to this reality, that, this, that the gospel's news, the gospel is a, a set of facts. Uh, you know, we hear the word preaching, and we have uh, different kind of things that kind of come to mind, right? A pulpit, uh, a monologue, a glorious beard, um, you know, uh, maybe we, maybe you've had some church hurt. You've had some bad experiences in churches. It brings to mind some other things like somebody who seems really self-righteous and, and judgmental. Um, there could be lots of things that kind of come to our minds when we think about this word preach or preaching or preached, right? But, but this word, uh, that we see in the Bible, when it talks about preaching the gospel, this, the word that I preach to you, and, and, and you know, as Paul's saying that, it had different connotations for Paul's original hearers and the original readers, the receivers of this, the recipients of this letter, the, the church in Corinth. Right? For them, because of the word in the Greek that we translate preach, it actually, really what it means is to herald, to proclaim news, right? to tell the news. Right? Ron Burgundy, to read the news. Right? It, that, that, that's what the word means. You know? it, it essentially means to announce and proclaim news. In the first century, they didn't have 24-hour news uh, channels or websites or even newspapers, if you're the archaic enough to still take the paper. Right? Uh, but the way news was given in that culture is a, a herald would walk in and proclaim in front of the town, the people, here is the news. And then maybe somebody would take that, they'd write it down, post it somewhere in the city for others to see that. That's how they got their information. And obviously, given the lack of means and, and all that went into proclaiming news in, in that sort of way, they didn't have time for like the cute and cuddly stories that we get in our nightly news programs every now and then, like the, the squirrels on the water skis. There's no time for that. Only real news. A storm is coming. New taxes have been implemented. War is breaking out. Like that kind of news. And Paul and the early Christians, they proclaimed the gospel like that. It's news. This is significant the most significant news. Like, they didn't roll in. Like, when Paul talks about how he went from town to town preaching the gospel, like, he wasn't going in and saying, let me tell you about a, a better way to live, right? Uh, here's how you can gain wisdom. Here's how you can get God on your side, you know? No, it, it's news. And, and every other religion comes at you like that. Do you understand that? Every other religion in the world comes at you and says, here's a way to get the deity that's worshipped on your side. Here's a way to live a better life. But Christianity doesn't do that. It comes at you with news. Something has actually happened in history, and it changes everything for you. It changes everything for me. 
Something has actually happened that you cannot ignore. Jesus lived, he died, he rose. You got to deal with that one way or another. You cannot ignore this truth. Something that has happened that has changed everything. And here's what happened. Here's the facts as Paul gives them to us. First, Christ died for our sins. Uh, one thing every human being on the planet has in common is that we are sinners. Right? We, we sin. We reject life with God under the rule of God. We all seek to kind of live our own way, to be our own God, to pursue the, the life as we see fit to live it. And, and as a result of that, we, we sever our relationship with God. We're cut off from him and we're sentenced to death. Um, and we follow that pattern that was set forth in, in Genesis chapter 3. Our first parents, that's exactly what they did. And all of us have followed suit doing the exact same thing. Now sin, in essence, that's a biblical word. But in essence, what it is, is it's making anything the ultimate thing in your life other than God. Right? Anything but God. Becoming ultimate. Sin in its essence is disbelief in God. It's saying to God, I know this is how you say life should go. I know this is how you say things should be between us. But I think I know better. I think it should go this way. I think you got that one wrong. That's, that's sin in its essence. It's, it's distrust. It's disbelief in God. It, it, it shows itself in making created things. Good things that God created for us to enjoy to his glory. It, it, it result, results in us making those created things ultimate things that we worship in the place of God. Living for money, living for pleasure, living for self, ultimately. The Bible teaches that the just penalty for our sin is death. And not just physical death, but eternal separation from God. But the Bible traces the story of God setting in motion a plan to rescue uh, us as condemned sinners. From before the foundation of the world, the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1, God has set in motion this plan to send his son to live the life you could not live, to die the death that you deserve in your place, and to to rise victorious over over sin and death, to give you the victory that through faith and you can be reconciled to God. And that's exactly what happened. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, humbled himself, stepped out of heaven, and made himself nothing. He took took on human nature with his divine nature. He added that to himself so that he might be born a man, so that he could live in our place. And he lived that sinless life. And he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, and Jesus died. He died. There's sometimes some challenges about that, you know, with little history programs about this time of year. Like, well, did he really die? Perhaps he was just taking a little cat nap on the cross and then, you know, bounced back up on Sunday. But, but here's what happened to Jesus. Here's the facts, right? The, the man was betrayed and arrested on late Thursday night. And suffered through a sleepless night of, of a mock trial, uh, was beaten, was, was brutally beaten, and, and suffered deep, deep um, uh, suffering at the hands of his torturers. He, he was mocked, he was bloodied and disfigured beyond recognition. He was nailed to a cross where his weakened body hung for several hours while his lungs filled up with blood. 
He was pronounced dead by a professional executioner on site. And just to make certain that he was dead, a spear was taken and taken up through his side, puncturing his heart sack, causing blood and water to flow from his side. Right? Yet, no doubt. Ah, maybe he was just snoozing a little bit. Right? I didn't go to medical school. Don't have that degree. But I'm pretty certain that you suffer through all that. There's no way you're bouncing up on Sunday. Right? He died. He died. He was dead on Friday. And Paul makes it clear that Jesus didn't just die, but he died for our sins. Right? The Old Testament, God had given the day of atonement to his people to atone for their sins once a year. And on that day, the high priest would take two, uh, two lambs uh, were taken, one had its throat slit and its blood drained, and it, it was sprinkled over the mercy seat, over the Ark of the Covenant, right, in the most holy place of the temple uh, as a propitiation for the wrath of God, right? To, to, the lamb was taking the wrath, that's what that word means, was taking the wrath in their place so that they might find favor and forgiveness instead. And so that's what the first lamb did. While the second lamb was prayed over, the sins of all the people prayed on that lamb, and then it was sent away out into the wilderness to take their sins away. It was symbolic of that. And all of that was meant to point us to Jesus Christ, whose blood was shed to pay for our sin once and for all, and who became our sins. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He was made to be, regarded to be, treated as our sin on the cross, so that he might take our sins away from us. Far beyond the physical torment of the cross is the cosmic suffering that Jesus endured. Becoming our sin, being regarded as our sin, suffering that eternal separation that we deserve in that moment as he died there. And the fact is, Jesus died for our sins. The second fact, he was buried. Uh, Jesus' dead body was taken from the cross, prepped for burial. He was placed in a rich man's tomb where he lay dead. Right? And just so you know, even if he wasn't dead, the, the burial prep would have suffocated him and killed him too. But he was dead. Right? The tomb was sealed, a large stone placed in front, sealing its opening. Uh, a guard detail was assigned to protect the tomb from any of his followers showing up and trying to steal his body and then spread these false stories about his resurrection. So a, a Roman guard detail was assigned to protect it. And those are the facts right, associated with the statement, he was buried. But that statement also alludes to another fact. He was Buried. It is, he is not buried anymore. He is no longer buried. He was, but he is no longer there. The tomb is empty. Because the third fact is that he was raised on the third day. Jesus died, he was buried, and on Sunday he rose again. He wasn't a spirit, he wasn't a ghost, but physically alive, a physical body living. The stone was rolled back, he walked from his tomb, he is risen. That's what we celebrate today, right? Does anybody want to celebrate that? No, okay. Right, he's risen. And Paul presents this not as hope, not as a myth, but as a historical fact. A historical fact. Jesus died for our sins. He was buried. And on the third day, he was raised. And all of this was in accordance with the scriptures. In other words, not only did he do all these things, but he did them exactly as was predicted by the prophets hundreds of years before he ever came. Exactly as he himself predicted before he died 
and rose again. The gospel, right, this gospel, this good news is the main point of the Bible. The Old Testament points to it. The New Testament announces it to us and unpacks the, the, the many implications and the realities that it have been accomplished because of it. And Paul gives us here the facts. Something has happened in history that changes everything. It changes everything. We were dead in our sins without hope, but Jesus lived and he died and he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. Paul gives the facts, but then he also supplies evidence. Evidence, the evidence for the gospel. If you glance down verses 5 through 8, we're going to walk through that real quick just and talk about some of the evidence that he gives here. He says, first, Jesus appeared to Cephas, right? Who's Cephas? That's Peter. That's Peter's Aramaic name, right? That's Peter in Aramaic. Peter, right? He appeared to Peter first. We'll talk more about Peter a little later on. But then he appeared to the rest of the 12, right? The 12 minus Judas plus the replacement for Judas, right? He appeared to the 12. Jesus appeared to more than 500 at one time. Paul says, most of whom are still alive. So, so go ask them about it if you want to, right? So he, he appeared to more than 500 people in one sitting. Like, this, this room's not quite that many people, right? Another 100 or so people in this room. He appeared to all of them at one time. Most of them are still alive. Some of them have fallen asleep. That means they're no longer with us. They're with Christ now. But most of them are still alive. So if you got a problem with what I'm saying, you don't believe me, go talk to them. That's what he's saying here. All right? 500 people at one time. People do not suffer from hallucinations in groups. Right? Jesus appeared to James. That's Jesus' little brother. Right? Uh, in the Gospel of John, we're told that Jesus' brothers did not believe in Jesus before, during his ministry. They did not follow Jesus. But then Jesus appears to James, and what it would be like to be in that room for that encounter, right? Uh, hey, little brother. <laughs> um, right? And James not only becomes a follower of Christ, he's made an apostle of Christ. He becomes the leader of the church in Jerusalem um, and, and that's kind of his story, the, the, the transformation of the gospel in his life. He appeared to all the apostles. Lastly, he appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus after his ascension. Now, when Paul says he goes from place to place preaching the gospel, this is what he preaches, what we see here in verses 3 through 8, the facts and the evidence. Here are the witnesses. Here's what happened. Here it is. He doesn't go around saying, hey, try Jesus out. You know, he'll, he'll make all your dreams come true, right? You'll be starting for the Indiana Pacers in the next game, right? If you just dream hard enough, Jesus can make that happen. No, that's not reality for any of us in this room. Um, he, he'll, try Jesus out. He'll take away all the bad things in your life, all your anxiety, all your stress. He'll be gone. He'll, he'll fix it all. He'll make you healthy and wealthy. That's not what Paul preached. He preaches that Jesus died for our sins, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day. And when people would say, hey, Paul, you're crazy. People don't rise from the dead. He would say, well, here are some people who've seen him besides me. Why don't you go talk to them? Why don't you go see what they have to say about how real and how likely it was that he rose? Think about some of the other religions in this world. Joseph Smith. What did Joseph Smith say? Well, Joseph Smith says 
And Joseph Smith, the founder of the Mormon church, by the way, if you don't know who that is, he claimed, hey, Jesus appeared to me, and three other apostles with him appeared to me. They came down from heaven, and they told me, I'm supposed to start a new religion. I'm supposed to be the head of this new religion. But here's the deal. They only appeared to me. They only, they only showed up to me by myself. And so they laid hands on me, told me to do this. Nobody else saw it. So here's what you're going to have to do. You're going to have to trust me. You're going to have to trust me. That's what he says. Muhammad, the great prophet of, of Islam, Allah appeared only to me. He only appeared to me. I alone heard him. I alone received his words. You'll have to trust me. Right? And of course, when they turn around, what they both give you is really a philosophy of life. It's not news. It's advice on how to live your life, how to be right with the God that is worshipped. But the message of Christianity is something has happened. Something has happened. And no one can refute it. Hundreds of people have seen with their own eyes. They've witnessed the, the reality, the truth of this. I dare you to refute the evidence. Paul says, go talk to them. The evidence is astounding for his resurrection. Right? Christianity didn't start in some convenient corner with just one person saying, hey, trust me. Trust me, it's true. The Mormon church... Every other religion pretty much did, not Christianity. The overwhelming evidence also testifies to the power of the gospel. Right? Romans 1.16, Paul says the gospel is the power of God to, uh, for salvation to everyone who believes. And this is what he writes here in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 and 2. He says, Now I will remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. It is the gospel proclaimed that God works through the open hearts to receive it in faith to be saved by that faith and that trust in Jesus Christ. It's the gospel proclaimed that reminds Christians of their sure standing through faith in Jesus and, and enables them to stand in that, that right standing and continue to per, persevere in that standing. The, the finished work of, of Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection has accomplished your salvation. This is what it tells you. Your sins are forgiven. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. Right? Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. You have been adopted into the family of God as his beloved child. You are a beloved son, a beloved daughter of the almighty, holy God. That is who you are first and foremost. That is your identity. That's what the gospel tells you and invites you to remain standing in as a follower of Jesus Christ. And it continues to sanctify you. Right? That is to make you more and more like Jesus. The more you abide in Jesus, the more you make your home in him, the more that you rest in all that is true about you now because of the finished work of Christ, the more you start to actually live like that. You start to actually look like a child of the almighty holy God. It's not just the power to save an unbeliever. It's the power to grow the Christian as you hold fast. And we see that transforming power displayed in the lives of those who saw the resurrected Christ. Peter, let's talk about Peter. Right before the resurrection, Jesus is arrested. Peter is ashamed. He's denying Jesus three times, we see in the scriptures. One time to like a little middle school aged girl. I didn't know him. No, I'm not with him. 
I'm afraid to tell you, you're 12. I don't know what you might do to me, right? That's Peter before the resurrection, but after the resurrection, Peter preaching boldly in the face of the promise of death. It's true. Jesus lived. He died and he was raised. I'm with him. I'm I'm for him. I'm following him. That's Peter after the resurrection, completely transformed. So much to the point that he's willing to go and be crucified like his Lord. Although the, the, the church history legend is, is that, that Peter, when he was put to death for his faith in Christ, uh, refused to be crucified in the same manner as Christ. And so he demanded that they crucify him upside down. But he would not renounce. He would not deny that it's all true. That's Peter. James, Jesus' little brother, before, no way my brother's God. After, I'm leading in the church. I am a, not only a faithful follower, I am proclaiming my big brother is Lord and Savior. And he too chose to be martyred for his faith rather than to denounce Christ and encourage others not to follow him. Paul, before his encounter with the resurrected Christ, Paul had to have witnessed from a distance Jesus' teaching and ministry. And he was convinced that Jesus was a phony, right? He's a phony. And he, he was greatly concerned about this movement of Christianity. And so he sought to, to destroy the blasphemy that he thought it was. Uh, sought to destroy and kill Christians. But he was transformed to become the world's greatest missionary that we've ever seen. What happened? The resurrection. The resurrection. Paul saw the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. And not only was he so transformed to, to write the words to live is Christ and to die is gain, he lived that out. Right? He learned what was of first importance, that Jesus died for his sins, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day. The, the, the truth of the gospel, the power of the gospel, is the only explanation for the explosion of Christianity in the world, and especially at the beginning, but even as it continues to explode and spread all over the world today. It is the only explanation that it is true, that it is true. There's no other way to explain that. Sure, we're going to make this up and we're going to die brutal deaths and we're never going to renounce that Jesus lived, died, and was resurrected. It's the only explanation. If it's not first the proclamation of true historical events, there's no way Christianity spreads like it has and like it continues to. It's the only explanation for how it's transformed the world. The truth of the gospel continues to transform. Think about it. When you know that that God in great love came for you, pursued you, to rescue you like that, that, that even when you were an enemy of God, he loved you enough to live for you, to die for you. When you really think on that, does that not change your heart a little bit? To be a little bit more gracious towards others? To be a little bit more ready to forgive someone else when you understand the power of what has happened for you? It changes everything in your life. It doesn't just help you to live a better life. It, help, it, it transforms your life. Right? If he loves you when you're an enemy, you're willing to forgive your enemies. You're willing to show a little grace to them with, with the people that you disagree with. Right? We just finished an election cycle. And Facebook is like a mess. People quit. Go out to coffee with one another. Talk to each other. And let the gospel do its work on it so you can love one another. Because that's what it does. And that's what it does. Um, resurrection enables you to face your own death with hope. Jesus has defeated death. Do you understand? Death is not the final word for you. 
Your death, your loved one's death, that's not the final word. If you're in Christ, just as you have died with Christ in your sin, you now walk in newness of life and you will be raised with a resurrection like his on that last day to to live with him in glory. But not only can you face death, but you can face any kind of suffering, any kind of hardship that comes your way. Knowing the truth of Christ's death and resurrection enables you to see through your suffering. To see through it. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying it's with smiles on our faces and laughing about our cancer diagnosis. But you're able to see through it and know that that is not the last word. That that is not the end. The final end. There's more. Right? There's more. There's glory unending with Christ resurrected you resurrected with him Um, many of you know my wife lost her mother um, in February this year from a long battle with cancer but and I'm not saying it's been easy and uh, especially she would not tell you it's been easy it's a hard thing it's a hard thing even today and I have her permission to talk about this so Um, but the one thing that has given so much hope is in those last moments one last conversation that my wife was able to have with her mother, sharing the gospel once more with her two weeks before her passing and and hearing her mother want to put her faith in Jesus, praying, Lord Jesus, forgive me for my sins. Would you save me and would you take me home? It has brought tremendous hope, real hope in the midst of real hard times. That's what the resurrection means for us. That's the hope of the resurrection that's available to all of us. That's the hope of the gospel, a truth that you can cling to in the midst of the hardest things that life throws at you. The resurrection confirms that that Jesus really is. It's not just a, a nice little cute bumper sticker verse. He really is working all things together for good, for good. But just look at it. Look at the cross and look at the tomb. The darkest moment in human history became the brightest moment in human history. The cross became the empty tomb. He is risen. He's risen. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? Right? What are you going to do about the resurrection? You're going to have to do something with it because it happened. Right? What are you going to do? Do you believe that Christ died for your sins, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day? And if you're a believer in this room, are you living in light of that? Are you thinking on it? Are you centering your whole person on the the importance of the gospel, on the significance of of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection? I I think we sometimes have this misconception that these early Christians were some kind of like superhero Christians, like they had special superpowers, like the Avengers. They do special things, and then uh, that made them able to be these superheroes of faith. But really, in a lot of ways, they're not any different from you or from me. They were simply looking at everything through the lens of the gospel. Looking at everything through the lens of the resurrection. And letting that transform everything in their life. They had a joy that couldn't be taken from them because of that. Even when the world seemed to be crushing them, they felt like they were on top of the world. Because they looked at it through that lens. Because they knew. They were able to look at their own death and say, you can't hurt me. You can't hurt me. They look at the suffering in their life and they say, you can't hurt me. This is not the final word. This is not my final reality. Because 
of the fact of the resurrection because Jesus is risen. And if you're here today and you're thinking, I'm too far gone, right? I, I have, you don't know my sins. I've sinned in so many ways. God could not possibly forgive me. There's no way he would welcome me in. Would, would you just look at the first name on the list of the people Paul gives as witnesses to the resurrection? Peter. Peter, who outright denied his Lord at the most critical time and abandoned him. And yet, what does Jesus do? One of the first things Jesus does after his resurrection is he goes after Peter. And he goes after Peter not to say, oh man, Peter, you blew it. Let me rub your face in it. He goes after Peter to restore him, to welcome him back in, and to send him back out as one of his on mission for him. Right? That's what the gospel is able to do. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what you've done, the risen Lord comes after you today. And he extends an invitation to know forgiveness, to know mercy, and to know real life, everlasting life to the full. Glory unending with Christ. Because Jesus died for your sins, he was buried, and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time to gather together and to celebrate that you um, you, Father, have, have done in, in great love. You sent your Son for us. Uh, Lord Jesus, that you, you came, not begrudgingly, but willingly and joyfully. You went to the cross on our behalf. You died the death that we deserved in our place. And Lord Jesus, you rose from the grave. You are risen today. You are alive at the Father's right hand today. And you are coming back and, and renewing and restoring and bringing the fullness of your kingdom with it. And because of that hope, the hope of the resurrection, we look forward to that and, and that glory that awaits us. And we cling to that hope. But would you help us to cling to that hope more and more each day? Would you help us to, to take the blinders off of what's right in front of our faces and to see what you have done through your life, your death, and your resurrection? Would you move those in this room who don't know you to put their hope in you? to experience the transformation that you bring? Would you move those of us in this room who, who believe in you, Lord, to, to know it in, in greater reality, in greater significance each and every day? Would you shape our lives by the power of your resurrection? We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.